Good afternoon, and thank you for joining today as we continue to chart the seas of life with the brilliant and inspired illumination of the Chovat Halvavot, or specifically the chapter which is entitled Shara Betochen. So today's class is, is called Disappointment Boulevard. <laughs> It's the street you never want to travel on. Who wants to be disappointed? Nobody. That's true. But then again, disappointment is inevitable. If you look in Webster's Dictionary or Cambridge, you'll find out that disappointment is either a noun, like you're a disappointment, or it could be understood as a profound emotional feeling of dissatisfaction. And typically, it's directly linked to expectations. Perhaps unreasonable ones, or perhaps extremely reasonable expectations. But when expectations aren't met, or people's hopes or aspirations aren't fulfilled, invariably, they react with disappointment. To be really transparent, I should tell you from the outset, Rabbeinu Bachaya never mentions the word disappointment. That's my own poetic license or little creativity. And if I'm wrong, well, I ask him, and of course, your forgiveness as well, but I don't think that I am because, because when you study Torah with an eye to application, that is to say, not merely for the purpose of acquiring knowledge or broadening one's cerebral, scholastic, or intellectual horizons, but when you study Torah in what the Hasidic masters called aliba de nafshe, trying to take the words, the ideas, the ideals, the lessons, and the guidance to heart. I think you'll agree with me that the benefit that Rabbeinu Bachaya illustrates in his next case for Betochen will enable us to avoid driving on Disappointment Boulevard. The closest we come is Rabbeinu Bachaya's introducing now the fourth suggestion or fourth application of benefit that will be derived when a person makes the investment and properly develops his betochen, his or her trust in Hashem. Rabbeinu Bachaya puts it as Rabbi Yehuda Ibn Tibbin translates it and amongst those benefits will be miut tsar nafshay. 
It's the first time we've heard this expression, pain of the soul. I would translate it as psychological distress. Interestingly, when I googled disappointment, one of the first translations or definitions that came up was, you guessed it, a sense of psychological distress. Psychological distress that, mind you, is actually, according to most psychologists, inevitable. Is it possible that they missed the boat? Is it possible that we don't have to live with disappointment? That we can avoid disappointment altogether? And if we can't, does Torah give us the wherewithal or the keys to successfully dealing with disappointment? Enabling us, instead of becoming overwhelmed or inundated with the negativity that it brings in its wake, to become more resilient, to become more adept, more able to deal with life as a result of disappointment. These are the kind of things that with Hashem's help I'm going to try to address today. For full disclosure, when you read the words of Rabbeinu Bechaya at the surface, it seems to be speaking about business. Not the business of disappointment, but the business But the business of making a living, turning a profit. I think it's a red herring, though. When you take the time to delve into the words of Rabbeinu Bachai carefully and thoughtfully, perhaps this business of talking about business can and should be more broadly applied to the business of life itself or the transactional dealings of relationship, achievement, scholastic efforts, and yes, making a difference in the world in which we live. With no further ado, I want to take you into the actual words of Rabbeinu Bachaya. I want to carefully look at them in their most literal iteration. And then I want to take a little bit of, may uh, I call it poetic license or creative license to expand and develop. And if you're just joining us now, stay with us for a while. I, I really and truly think that the Torah we're going to study today is going to enable you to live a happier and more fulfilled life because nobody likes dealing with disappointment. And I hope you won't be disappointed. Continuing the fourth approach to why betachen is such a valuable thing to attain, an investment worth making. For those of you who are following along in the new Kihat edition of the Shara Betochen, we're on page 33. And yes, I'm going to have a number of bones to pick with the translation. But nonetheless, here 
the elucidator introduces the next portion of Shara Betochen as, quote, no distress, which I'm going to reframe as no disappointment. Umehen, and amongst the material or earthly, terrestrial, literal, not Yiddishkeit oriented, but everyday pedestrian reality oriented benefits. Miut a minimizing of the psychological distress, which for some reason he chose to translate as anguish. Maybe it's the same thing when it comes to business dealings. Now, the word mischer, broadly speaking, means dealings. You can have dealings with other people or dealings with situations that have nothing to do with fiduciary matters of financial profit. <laughs> we could have some business to discuss that has nothing to do with business. People talk about the business of faith, not in a disparaging way, not as, or within the notion that religion is about taking somebody's money, but it's something we make efforts for. We have the business of relationships. We make investments of time and energy, creativity, and make ourselves vulnerable. We curry or nurture a sense of caring, compassion, love. It's all a business of sorts. In fact, the entire journey of life could be boiled down into terms of business. That's not my idea. Our sages used those very metaphors. Our sages in the Mishnah tell us that when we talk about life, it could best be understood in the terms of an investment. There is a risk involved with a neshama leaving its beautiful, heavenly, perfect reality coming to be invested into the meat suit body of not only bone, sinew, and plasma, but selfishness, anger, strife, frustration, sadness, laziness. The list goes on. Who needs it? It's an investment. Because just like when it comes to business, if the only thing you're able to reap at the end of a lot of effort is your original investment, that's not called business. The Gemara says, Zovin v'zovin, tagre If you buy and sell for the same exact price, you call that business? If an ashama comes down to this world and returns, if you will, unscathed, unsoiled, unsullied, the way it came, we'd call that a failed experiment. Bad business. Hashem puts us in these challenging situations that are risky because there's a profit to be made. I want to suggest to you that Rabbeinu Bechaya is talking about business. But in some ways, also as a metaphor. The things he'll introduce us to, like merchandise left unsold or loans defaulted on, can easily be exported from the syntax of commerce into the dealings of life itself. 
and the business of life is filled with disappointments. We all have expectations. And when those expectations aren't met, we're disappointed. Some react to disappointment by lowering their expectations. They say, if you have no expectations, you'll never be disappointed. You also eventually lose all motivation. As many a psychologist has pointed out, lowering expectations to the point that you'll have no disappointment will invariably or inevitably lead you down the path of mediocrity. And then you'll be a disappointment. <laughs> a disappointment to yourself and those around you because you could have accomplished so much more if only you had some hopes and aspirations. Conversely, though, if a person has high hopes and aspirations, well, they might be disappointed. Sounds like a catch-22. In 1916, Sigmund Freud suggested that some people are what he called wreckage of their own success. He described something which the Gemara actually richly illustrates in its depiction of what it calls bread of shame. Freud talks about a person who has success but doesn't believe the success is the result of his or her efforts and as such is profoundly disappointed with the fruits of that success. They can't enjoy or take any happiness out of the success because they feel they didn't really earn it. The Gemara talks about this centuries before Sigmund Freud, calling it Nahama de Chisufa, proverbial bread of shame. When things come our way unearned, we feel no satisfaction in it. It doesn't give us a sense of joy. It doesn't help us avoid disappointment. For it also points out that sometimes people are disappointed by the realization of their aspirations because, hey, it wasn't even as good as I thought it was going to be. I expected much more bliss at the end of the rainbow. So sometimes having aspirations and achieving them is in and of itself a profound source of disappointment. It's kind of confusing, but the truth is that human desire is a convoluted thing and it's even sometimes contradictory. We want certain things because we believe once we have these things we'll be happy only to attain them and taste disappointment because it wasn't what we thought it was going to be. Are we doomed to disappointment? Is there a way around disappointment? Like, what's the best path to avoid disappointment? Is it lowering expectations to the point that you become a disappointment? Or is it to becoming an overachiever, always aiming for the stars, working really hard, and inevitably always being disappointed because perfection never ends up being perfect? My dear friends, Rabbeinu Bechaya, a thousand years ago, without even mentioning the word disappointment, gives us the keys to unlocking our little jail cell. We can free ourselves from debilitating disappointment. We really can. The more I've thought about this, I've come to the realization that people 
can never free themselves of disappointment. In the words of our sages, Ein chavish matir es atzmo. The person whose hands are proverbially tied, think of hands tied, can't untie his or her own knots because your hands are tied. So who can untie your knots? <laughs> the answer is always someone else. Most often, someone who's not stuck within the same limitation or vicissitude as you. Humanity in and of itself can never free itself from disappointments because we don't know what the future is going to bring. If we have no expectations, we're also usually devoid of any kind of motivation. We become inert and lazy, no expectations. And yet, when we start to have expectations, immediately we're disappointed. Rabbeinu Bechaya tells us that there is a way out of the human problem or paradox of disappointment. It's called faith and trust in Hashem. <laughs> Listen to the beautiful words that he shares with us. Let's talk about business. Im titakev et pragmatia. Sometimes written as pragmatia with a gimel or a kuf. We'll follow the approach of the Manoya Chalavavis, who interprets the words of Rabbeinu Bechai here as saying, here's somebody who got into business. Quote, Hitchil Eisek Masa Umatan. There's the give and take. There's a transaction, a deal. You know, business doesn't just happen in a moment. So plans are being laid. A profit is supposed to be realized. And what happens? All of this is kedei laharviach, to realize some kind of boon. It could be, for example, bikish memenu shigilve, you asked for a loan, or yakif, or to give you merchandise, you know, kind of on commission or credit. Or it could be some kind of mediation of a deal. A sarsarus. And then, it all looked great on paper. Vahadavar mitakev milihigomer. Somehow, you couldn't close the deal. How many business people spend time, treasure, toil, and a great deal of effort but in the end, the deal didn't close. It's no fault of yours. <laughs> you know, all failure is always somebody else's fault. You're fantastic. Success, they say, is a, well, an illegitimate child. Everybody claims paternity, but failure? An orphan. Nobody knows where he came from. So you worked hard, you tried, you had expectations, reasonable expectations, expectations that were based on previous performance. And this time? It didn't come together. And perhaps, indeed, due to nobody's fault, circumstances. How many people have had their businesses devastated by the pandemic that's been wreaking havoc on the economy for 
a year and a half with no end in sight. Whose fault is that? One fellow called me in tears. He had this lucrative, beautiful business. It was in the entertainment sector. It all went up in smoke. He invested everything in trying to achieve success with every indicator of tremendous success coming his way. But nobody planned for a pandemic. Somebody said to me that during the pandemic, we realized that Hashem is really in charge. And another wise person interjected and said, Hashem was always in charge. <laughs> We're just a little more aware of it now. My dear friends, the key to understanding how you can avoid disappointment is to stop relying on yourself or make the assumption that your efforts yield success. You worked on a deal, it fell through. Or, says Rabbeinu Bechaya, Tisakevets le pragmatya. What does that mean? The pragmatya, the businesses, stuck with you. The Marpel and Nefesh seems to understand the word pragmatya as simply business, which is a little unwieldy. It's hard to kind of swallow that. It doesn't fit. But the Monoya Chalvave says, pragmatya is the merchandise, the schoira. You had fantastic merchandise. There was a great demand. And suddenly the market was flooded. Or whatever reason for that original demand, suddenly it dissipated. No more demand. No more interest. <laughs> what am I going to do with all the product now? Imagine a person who would be investing in enormous amounts of, for example, hand sanitizer, assuming that the pandemic is going to be going on for, I don't know, months. And suddenly, we really have a paradigm shift. And now, the things that he may have spent a lot of money on aren't that valuable altogether. He's stuck with the merchandise. How often in business do people have things that they can't sell anymore, at least not for a profit? Sometimes they'll try to recover 10 cents on a dollar. At least you don't have a total write-off. That's not business. <laughs> That's called stopping the bleeding. So you had these fantastic expectations. Based on past performance and all the reports you generated, this was a wonderful investment. Until it wasn't. Now you're stuck with the merchandise. Or, even worse, you sold everything. The people who owe you the money aren't paying. I knew a fellow years ago who was doing extraordinarily well. He kept overextending himself, taking new loans, and each time realizing a handsome profit until the place in which he was doing business suddenly was visited by conflict. In the aftermath of just a few months of conflict, the economy was in shambles. And the last shipment that he made, well, everything got lost. 
and none of the customers ever paid. They all went bankrupt. Here was a person who had done the same thing time and again, each time investing even more. We had every good reason. The conflict that visited that particular part of the world had been totally, absolutely unpredictable. Nobody expected it. The results on an economic level were absolutely devastating. Rabbi Nebuchadnezzar is talking about precisely that. He says, you have a situation of You did good business, you sold the merchandise, now you can't collect. And here's my proof that Rabbeinu B'chaya isn't only talking about business. Or maybe, maybe he gets sick. Well, obviously, if a person loses their health, they can't engage in commerce. But that really isn't business-oriented. No matter what you are planning to do, if you lost your health, God forbid, and you're suffering with illness, if you're trying to stay alive, you're not going to be able to be success find success, pardon me, or be successful in virtually anything. That's precisely the point. One of the things we need to be successful in life is our health. And that also in spiritual matters, especially in spiritual matters. The Alter Rebbe repeated in the name of his teacher, the Magad of Mizrich, many times the following maxim. I'll share it in Yiddish first. A kleine lechel in guf macht a grosse loch in the shama. A small crevice or deficiency in our bodily or material existence adds up to a gaping hole in our spiritual reality. I mean, if a person isn't healthy, if one doesn't have the ability to function, how will they pray or study Torah or be there to help or support others. Obviously, if you don't have the material wherewithal or ability, no mitzvahs can ever be performed. Maimonides Rambam in the end of the laws of tshuva, as well as in his commentary on the 11th chapter of Mesechet Sanhedrin, clearly spells out that the rewards that are talked about in Torah, material rewards, like for example the ones we find in Parshat Bechukotai at the end of the book of Leviticus, or in Parshat Ekev, about midway to the book of Deuteronomy, are really speaking not about remuneration for the mitzvah, but rather wherewithal possibility and ability that's being granted to perform yet another mitzvah. Paraphrasing from the words of our sages in the Mishnah, Mesechet Avot, he says, schar mitzvah, mitzvah. The reward of a mitzvah is a mitzvah. That sounds disappointing, doesn't it? You thought you're getting a reward and the answer is a mitzvah? But what, pray tell, is as valuable as a mitzvah? Nothing. The only thing that's as valuable as a mitzvah is another mitzvah. So the rewards that Hashem is going to give you is the possibility for you to be able to choose to do a mitzvah. But if I don't have the wherewithal or ability, can I choose? Every mitzvah affords us the ability to have a relationship with God. 
The reward is the relationship itself. My new granddaughter is visiting with us now. And whenever I can steal away for a few minutes, it's, it's so rewarding and edifying just to hold this child and look in her eyes. Would anybody ask me, what do you get from it? <laughs> What's in it for you? What reward? Does my son pay me for babysitting his baby? It's ridiculous. The relationship is the ultimate goal. Spending that time is the reward. Now I know most of us don't choose to look at a mitzvah that way. Our relationship with God seems a little bit distant. And it's hard for us to appreciate, to sense, and to feel the closeness to Hashem that we might feel towards a child or a grandchild. That's true. It's hard for us to feel it. But it's not intrinsically different. It's only true in an overt or experiential way. The truth is that nothing is as valuable as a mitzvah. The only way we're going to feel and know what that means is when Mashiach comes. Or God forbid when we get to the other side and let's not even think or go there. Mashiach will come soon and we will understand the value of every mitzvah we did. Here's a, a metaphor that some of you might be able to relate to. There is nothing as rewarding as helping somebody in need. It doesn't require a leap of faith to appreciate the idea that the more you give, the more you get. To see how you made a difference in somebody else's life is an exhilarating thing. And if you've never experienced it, please try it. Make a real difference in somebody's life. And if you're fortunate enough to receive a little bit of thanks, gratitude, and appreciation, you realize that it's the most life-edifying thing. I've heard wealthy people speak about the joy of making what they call, and I quote, a transformational benefaction. They're not only taking pride in an organization, quote-unquote, or the good work being done by a particular outfit in the Jewish community. They can choose to make a transformational benefaction. Think of the family that gifted the property we're on right now to Chabad. The Manson and the Goldberg family have a tremendous amount of satisfaction. They literally have changed the lives of hundreds, thousands, maybe due to the internet, hundreds of thousands. Very few of us can afford to make a transformational benefaction. So perhaps when we say aser ta aser, or the more you'll give tzedakah, the more Hashem will give you money, it doesn't mean that money equals the value of tzedakah. It means that the more we're able, more we're, we, are, we help others, the more we'll be able to do so. And we can even experience it in the joy and satisfaction, the nachas, from seeing the difference you make. All of this is just 
I guess, but a commentary on the words, It's not business. If you have no health, you can't succeed at the business of life itself. And that is precisely the point. This isn't about business. It's about avoiding disappointment due to the expectations we have out of life, of which commerce is a powerful metaphor. Because as they say, money makes the world go round. So what is the answer? How do you avoid disappointment when your expectations aren't met? <laughs> There's a, a quote out there that's misattributed to Shakespeare, but it, it's from somebody. It goes something to the effect of disappointment is the heartache born of expect expectation. We all have expectations. None of us can be certain our expectations will be met. Having no expectations is even more disappointing. How can we avoid disappointment? Says Rabbeinu Bechaya, the answer is simply to be aware of the truth. The truth. The truth is, because we speak here about a person who knows the truth. He knows that the Creator, and here I have a big bone to pick with the translator, they translate it as repairs his matters. repairs his matters. That's literally like Amelia Bedelia. If you want to see time fly, you throw a clock through the window. So another English translation I looked at. I think this is done by Art Scroll, they wrote. Metaken Inyane arranges his affairs. Perhaps a little closer. <laughs> this cannot be translated literally in English. Tikkun olam, that bandied about expression that's been perverted beyond recognition. What does it mean? It's translated as fixing the broken world. The things have to be broken for them to be fixed. Things can be perfected. A stalk of wheat isn't broken nor is it useless. But to develop the wheat fully requires many activities like winnowing, grinding, sifting, kneading, forming, baking, presto, <laughs> after a heck of a lot of activity. From a stalk of wheat comes a delicious bagel or roll. Was the wheat broken? Did you repair the grain? Sort of, in as many words, but not literally. 
The word letakein in Torah literature doesn't mean to fix or repair. The word letakein means to perfect. So if I'm to take raw material and to develop it fully, that's an act of tikkun. Maybe rectification, definitely not repair. Hashem doesn't just arrange things. He perfects things. Rabbeinu B'chayah's words are, Haboyre yizborech it mitakin inyon of yoyser mimenu. God perfects things more so than you could possibly hope to. Has it ever happened to you that you made efforts, but you achieved success that was beyond your wildest dreams? I'm sure it's also happened that you made efforts and were struck by failure beneath your lowest expectations. But let's talk about things in a positive sense. If you did something based on the information you had, but you never could have known what was coming, and as a result, the things were exponentially greater or more effective. Who fixed that for you, quote unquote? Who perfected things for you? Who arranged things so exquisitely for you, if not the creator of heaven and earth? If we are to be brutally honest with ourselves, and if we are to look at the areas of life in which we succeeded, can any of us be foolish enough to attribute full success to ourselves? Can any of us be blind enough to think that we did this? Or do we come to the conclusion that we were, quote, lucky? Coincidence? Those are just six or eleven letter names for God, my friends. Even having mazel, which is freely translated as luck or good fortune, is really a stroke of siyata deshmaya, heavenly assistance. You made your best effort. You were supposed to. Torah ordains that. But Hashem can make things turn far better than you ever could have imagined. So why limit it to say, I'm doing A, B, and C, and I have such and such an expectation. And my expectation doesn't pan out. I'm disappointed. Why? Because I expected A, B, and C to which the person who knows the truth that Hashem is arranging everything says, you thought A, B, and C was the highest level of success, but in fact, HaKadosh Baruch Hu was arranging X, Y, and Z, a higher level, something you could never have imagined. Here's a silly story that I'll share to illustrate the point, although I don't know if it's actually true. 
It doesn't matter if it's actually true. It could be true, and it is true in so many different ways. A recent immigrant from Europe was trying to make his way in the United States. He couldn't really find a job. He wasn't, he wasn't equipped to work in the American market. He barely spoke English. He couldn't read or write. So he lands a job as a shamas in a shul. It's just a helper. He performs some menial duties. It's a posh shul of well-coiffed individuals who can afford to, well, you'll forgive me, pay a schlepper. He puts the prayer books back on the shelf. He makes sure the lights are on. The climate control is working. You know, a shamas and a shul. And the story goes that one day there's a, there's a wedding and the shamash is asked to sign the marriage contract. Decades ago, it was common for the ketubah not only to be written in Hebrew, or it's in Aramaic and in original, but also to have something written in English on the side. Very not common today, and actually halakhically a bad idea, because it creates what we would call a contradiction of terms, like which is the real ketubah. In halakhic language, it's like, it's like it screams something here is counterfeit. And I've never seen an English translation that's precise or exactly to what the Aramaic says. And if it doesn't translate it, what's the point? Be that as it may, it was once common. It's very uncommon today, I must say. I think that's a good thing. Without belaboring that point. The Shamash was called to sign his name. He was an observant Jew. Sign your name, be an aide, a witness on the ketubah. And then, after he signed his name in Hebrew, which he could do well, he was asked to sign his name in English, and he couldn't do that. He made an X. The president of the shul happened to be there, and he was very puzzled. He said to the fellow, sign your name like a mensch. He said, I, I can't. You can't sign your name? No, said the poor immigrant. I, I didn't have a chance to go to English as a second language. I'm trying to get a living. And as the story goes, the president flew into a rage and demanded that the rabbi fire a shamash. He says, we can't have a shamash who doesn't even know how to sign his name in English. Well, the postscript in the immediate sense was the man was without a job. Brokenhearted. He desperately looked for some way to be able to find a prophet. Push came to shove, and no pun intended, he ends up behind a push cart. He was a friendly fellow. He was congenial. He had a natural knack of selling, and he actually did well. At some point, he, he owned the push cart, and he began to buy his own merchandise. And one push cart turned into several push carts in the Lower East Side, and eventually... He had his own dry goods store. One store turned into a second store. Maybe it was his honesty. Maybe it was his business acumen. Really and truly the bracha of Hashem. <laughs> the man became a success. Decades later, he owned a string. Literally, a chain of stores. And that's where the story is told that he's sitting in the bank He's negotiating for a rather large loan to further expand and develop the business. And he's told to sign his name. And he promptly affixes an X, scribbles, 
something unintelligible. And the bank manager says, is that your signature? And the heavily accented tycoon says, yep, that's what I got. And he says to him, sir, you don't know how to sign your name in English? And the tycoon says, nope, I don't know. I never learned. And the bank manager says, wow, if you had only learned to read and write in English, I can't even imagine how wealthy you would be. To which the tycoon said, if I knew how to write my name in English, I'd still be a shamus in a shul. I don't know if the story is true. It doesn't matter if this particular story is true. This is the story of so many people's lives. Where your aspirations fell flat. Your expectations didn't pan out. You tasted bitter disappointment. Rabbeinu Bechaya says to you, why are you disappointed? And you say, what do you mean? I had expectations. Rabbeinu Bechaya says, HaKadosh Baruch Hu is taking care of you. Your efforts are not the result of your success. They aren't. It looks that way. We talked about this in many episodes ago. Hashem arranges it that way. The Rebbe brilliantly illustrates this in one of his edited sikhas, calling the efforts we make like an envelope, a wallet. You have to have money to put in the wallet. He says the bracha, birchas Hashem, it is the bracha of Hashem that is Tasha that brings us to wealth. Uveirachta, Hashem will bless you, b'chol tasa in everything that you do. Yes, of course you need to do something. But that's because Hashem wants things to assume a natural kind of appearance. It's camouflaged that way. It's made to look that way. The truth is that there are many people who invest every ounce of thoughtful work, time, effort, and come up empty-handed. And there are people who made foolish investments and by stroke of luck ended up being lucky. They say, well, that's the exception. That's, uh, that's lucky. No. That's the will of Hashem. Does that mean that people should make foolish investments? Does it mean that people should work in a blind fashion? Absolutely not. That's called relying on a miracle. And Torah doesn't permit that. Almighty God in His infinite wisdom created a world that seems to function in its natural fashion according to the rules or laws of Teva. The word Teva shares a common word with the word Tavua, which means sunken or covered over by the ocean waters. Like Bisahoimais Tibu, the forces of the mightiest army in the world were covered by the depths. I'm talking about the crossing of the Reed Sea, of course. Another little unpredictable event. The point is, everything in our reality is submerged. When you look at the sea, all you see is sea. Because the sea covers everything that is beneath. It was only a few decades ago, maybe 80 years ago, that it was discovered that the depths and the heights of the mountain ranges beneath the ocean were not only as dramatic 
as the Himalayas, but in fact that the highest mountain in the ocean floor was three times the height of Mount McKinley. Attesting to the words of our sages, Kol Masha Yesh Bayam, Yesh Bayabosha. Whatever's in the sea is on dry land. The Kol Masha Yesh Bayam, whatever's on dry land, Yesh Bayabosha. The difference is what we see. On dry land, we see the rises and rests of the mountain terrain. Everything's visible, just about. When we look at the oceanic bodies covering three quarters of planet Earth, we don't see that they're teeming with life and activity. We don't see the, what they call flora and fauna. We can't see all the differences. It's covered over. That's the meaning of Teva. So what are we expected to do? We're expected to work hard. We're expected to make every effort. However, remember, in the end, HaKadosh Baruch Hu does for us what is very best. Sometimes we're fortunate enough or blessed enough to see it in our immediate future. Sometimes we don't realize it for decades. And sometimes it's something that can only be understood on another dimension or in another world. But it's always for our best. As the commentary on Shara Betochen, known as the Toiv Halavonen, says, Mada Ovid Rachamono, paraphrasing the Gemara Mesechetanet, he says, Mada Ovid Rachamono, what the merciful one does, Letav Ovid, is always done for our good, even if we never get to know it. It's interesting to note that the Tov Halavonon in his commentary says that the anguish, the psychological distress that we might experience known as disappointment is avoided if we have betochen. He says, The person who places his or her absolute trust in Hashem, That doesn't mean you sit home and wait for miracles to unfold. You have to do work. You have to be involved in some kind of commerce or business or trade. As per the dictate, which is found in the beginning of the second chapter of Mesechet Avot, called Torah, any Torah which doesn't have work that goes along with it, the disciple of Rashi, Rabbeinu Simcha Vitri says that this refers to Malacha Kipshuta. Although there's Hasidic interpretation as to what that work or toil or effort might mean, on a literal level, says the Mahzavitri, it means actual work. And he says, if you don't make the efforts to make a living, then you may be spoiling your own destiny. It may force you to become exiled or to look elsewhere for your sustenance. We talked about this in a previous episode. If you have enough faith in Hashem and you make the efforts, you'll be fortunate enough to find your sustenance right where you live and you can stay home. The Machzavitri suggests that one of the reasons a person might be compelled to leave his or her immediate environs is because they didn't make honest efforts to try to make a living. And he says, in doing so, Mizbatom Miterosei. Now you can't study Torah or be involved in spiritual or religious pursuit because 
Now, unfortunately, you have to exile yourself to try and make a living. Had you made the righteous or faith-filled, sincere efforts to begin with, you would have found your sustenance without the added toil. The Alter Rebbe clearly rules in the Shulchan Aruch. It's Eurachayim, chapter 156. He says, Avur Parnasosoy, for a person's parnasa, for a person's livelihood, and in order for a person to provide sustenance for himself and for those of his household, a person has to be involved in making a living. This notion that I'll sit and study Torah, you support me, is actually not supported by Torah literature. Yes, there's always been some special people who dedicated their lives to Torah study, the proverbial tribe of Yisachar, but as a rule, one cannot claim that mantle with impunity, suggesting that I want to study Torah, you go to work. We're enjoined to make efforts to do what we can to make a living. If you won't, and I'm quoting Jewish law, the Shulchan Aruch, in the end, Torah study that doesn't come with an honest day's work, well, it kind of falls apart. And a person will experience poverty. And his poverty will turn him away from his creator. So of course you have to make the efforts. Of course you need to have a vocation, an occupation. Of course you need to work hard at doing things that are, well, well endowed with an eye to making parnasa, to making sustenance for yourself and for your family. That's necessary. The success or expectation of it, that's in Hashem's sense. Let's go back to the question we began with. Can a person avoid disappointment? The answer is in matters of business, and I mean the business of life, yes. Because if disappointment is the psychological distress that one comes when his or her expectations are unmet, that's only because people have expectations, meaning they feel entitled. If I do A, B, and C, I'll necessarily end up with F, J, K, or I. It has to be that way. Says who? Says who? I have to make my efforts because Hashem asks that of me. And I should be motivated because I'm serving Hashem. And there could be no greater motivation than doing what must be done because it is the will of the Creator of heaven and earth. What's my expectations? My expectation is that Hashem knows best. And He will give me that which I need most. It may not be what I thought I needed, but I know it was exactly what I needed. And Hashem will find a way to provide. This isn't the opiate of the masses. This isn't mumbo-jumbo or a person convincing himself of imaginary untruths. That's the truth. The way psychologists tell you to manage disappointment is by employing mumbo-jumbo by either 
setting more realistic expectations or don't have such high aspirations. Yeah, but that can lead me to mediocrity. Well, don't be too mediocre. You know, the actuarial science will suggest that if you make reasonable expectations, most of the time, you'll probably get what you wanted. Yes, inevitably, you'll be disappointed sometimes, but then again, you can try to learn from those disappointments or bounce back from them. Don't harp on the past. Instead, look at the future. That's what we call pop psychology. It's not necessarily reframing the narrative entirely. Because in Chavish, materis atzmai, if your hands are tied, you can't untie your hands or, so to speak, free yourself. But if you are connected on high, as the famous Remero of Primishlan said, as misugibunden oiben, when you are tied or linked or connected on high, falt menestunten, that you don't fall into the doldrums or depths of despair and disappointment. This is the meaning of living with absolute betachem. This is the meaning of living with 100% certainty because I've learned to trust Hashem. And Hashem loves me and Hashem does for me exactly as I need beyond my wildest expectations. This is not a question of unrealistic expectation or no expectation. It's having a perspective which is radically altered and different from the terrestrial or natural, everyday, pedestrian way of looking at things. It's living with a sense of God consciousness, awareness of the Creator, and placing one's hope in the Creator, which is called betachen. Rabbeinu Bachaya isn't the first one to suggest this. In fact, as he has done time and again, he now says, you need to look no further than the words of our prophets. And here he directs us to the book of Psalms. Finishing the words of Rabbeinu Bechaya, before we take a look into the illuminating words of David HaMelech's Tehillim, he says, God chooses for you that which is far better than you could have chosen for yourself. You imagined that certain things would be very good for you. You imagine those things based on your awareness, based on your perspective, which invariably and inevitably is myopic. We are all short-sighted. We all see just a few pixels of an infinitely larger picture. Only HaKadosh Baruch Hu sees that picture. Only God knows how we are but a dot that forms a long line of souls. Only Hashem knows the full truth about where we came from and to whence we go. Only Hashem can see how everything that happens over the course of a person's lifetime and all of its billions or trillions or octillions of ripple effects are all perfectly interacting, all creating a synergy called life. Hashem, only God can see the range and the gamut of the tapestry. 
the wisest of people, the most discerning of men and women, would never be able to know what is really best for them. We can make assumptions, but they're really nothing more than that. Trusting Hashem, having betachen means you know that only Hashem knows what's best for you. You do your job dutifully. It's an act of avodas Hashem. You do everything that must be done. You're motivated because you're doing the right thing. You're fulfilling your destiny in life. Anxiety, worries, concerns, disappointment, impossible. Disappointed of what? Of receiving the very best I possibly couldn't even have imagined, even though it doesn't seem that way to me now? How could that be disappointing? I know Hashem has just given me exactly what I needed. The story is told of the sage who rode with Eliyahu Hanavi. Raham Luna desperately wants to be with Eliyahu, and Eliyahu Hanavi says, you can only be with me, but you can't ask questions. And he sees a series of events which literally boggle his mind. A kind couple takes them in and Eliyahu Hanavi prays that their only asset, a cow, die the next day. And that happens. Mean, capricious, arrogant townspeople refuse to provide hospitality and they're left to fend for themselves on the dark and dangerous streets and Eliyahu Navi blesses them that they should have a plethora of leadership and yet another community that is so kind and hospitable is blessed to produce a single leader. And finally, Rav Nuna plots and he says, what is going on over here? Eliyahu says, that's it, the journey is finished. You can't come with me anymore, but I'll answer your questions. He says, that first couple we met, she was supposed to die the next day. Due to my prayers, the cow became her expiation and died in her stead. What looked like a terrible event or a curse was actually a huge blessing in disguise, providing that couple with longevity and each other. The mean community, they would have many leaders. They'd have lots of politics. They would never know a day of peace again. The kind community, would have one charismatic leader who would unite them all. They would live in peace and in prosperity for decades to come. We have a very limited perspective of things. It is not possible for a human being to see what Hashem knows. A person cannot see it God's way and continue to live life as we know it. Life can only be lived as it is, in a state of legal blindness. We see very little. We understand even less. But a person can live with emuna ubetochen. And if you live with emuna ubetochen, if you rely entirely and solely on Hashem, you'll never be disappointed when your expectations aren't met. Now, it doesn't mean you'll never be disappointed in life. I can't say that. And neither does Rabbeinu Bahaya, by the way. That's because Hakolbi de Shomayim, everything is in the hands of heaven, with one glaring exception. Chutz Meyira Shomayim, our sages said, except for the notion or ideal 
of living with a state of reverence for Hashem, being respectful of God and the mission that we've been given. That is to say, the freedom we have to choose, to choose between what Moshe Rabbeinu metaphorizes as a life of blessing or the opposite. We can choose to be righteous or chas v'shalom to be mean, capricious, and selfish. We can choose to be subservient to the Creator and to fulfill our destiny or to be rebellious and to push back against the grain of our own being, ultimately becoming terribly scratched in the process. Those are choices we have to make. There will be people in life who will be disappointments to you. We might be disappointed with the choices others will make. We might have expected more from other people. We might have thought that people would be more loving, more caring, more reciprocal, more generous. We might have expected that somebody to whom we were kind would be kind back to us. And sometimes they prove to be very disappointing. Sometimes we're disappointed by the choices our children or our spouse makes. I can't promise you that you won't have that kind of disappointment. The truth is that we do naturally have expectations. We have expectations from others. It's called relationship. Typically when you're there for somebody else, you do expect them to be there for you. You know, when Father Jacob asked Joseph to carry his body from Mitzrayim after his passing and bring him to burial in Eretz Yisrael in Israel, he said, and I quote, Ve'asita imadi chesed ve'emet. This was a deathbed request. You'll do with me kindness and truth. And our sages say that chesed shall emes, the truest kindness, is the kindness we perform with a corpse. Because you can't have expectations from the person you bury. They're not in a position to assist you anymore. That very statement indicates that we do naturally have expectations of others. It would only be normal to expect that somebody will treat you as you treated them. And as I'm sure you've experienced, I certainly have, Sometimes people can be so disappointing. So disappointing. Those are disappointments that can't be avoided. So how does one deal with those disappointments? Well, Rabbeinu Bahai doesn't talk about it here. But as the Alter Rebbe talks about it in Tanya, he says, you must always remember Al-Hanizak Nigzer. The loss you experienced was ordained. Nobody can do anything to you that wasn't ordained. That doesn't exonerate the perpetrator. He or she will pay the price before God. We will all be answerable for the actions we took and the choices we made. That doesn't mean that the impact is random or that anybody has control over us. And as such, we have the ability to sublimate our perspective and instead of being deeply or profoundly disappointed, which might be a visceral reaction by somebody else, 
we can swallow hard and say, I was humiliated, I needed that. Something like that happened to me a little while ago. A person that I never expected it from embarrassed me in public. I was hurt. I left and I, I had to really try hard to sublimate or redirect my, my perspective. I said, I needed that. I must have needed a good humbling. The fact that that person did it is not appropriate. And eventually I did confront them. That's the right thing to do. When somebody hurts you, you are supposed to communicate it. Don't keep it in your heart. And the good news is, they apologized. We made peace. And they just moved on. It doesn't always work that way. People don't always make the right decisions. The way we deal with disappointment is by knowing that ultimately whatever happens is Latova. When it comes, however, to the business of life, to the thing that we have no control over, the things that are beyond the purview of anybody's control, we can avoid disappointment altogether by living with perfect trust and faith in Hashem. That's a huge benefit. It's an incredibly uplifting way to live. It's a way to avoid psychological distress, anger, anguish, and pain that really nothing else can give you. Rabbeinu Bachaya finishes now by leaning on the statement that David HaMelech makes in Psalm 62. And with this, we'll conclude today's class. David HaMelech says in the sixth verse of Psalm 62, Ach lelikim doimi nafshi. Only to God does my soul pine and hope. Ki mimenu tikvasi. It is in God, in God alone, that I place my hope. Let's delve into this verse a little. David HaMelech is pursued by murderous enemies. I'm quoting from the little preface, the preamble to Psalm 62 in the Art Scroll version. David's complete trust in Hashem remains unshaken. Indeed, the persecution by his enemies elicits new foundations of faith from King David's soul. He lashes out against the very forces which threaten and reveals their heavy worthlessness. In Hasidus it says, and there's a famous mimer of the 5th Rebbe called Viedaita Moskva, in which he says that the whole purpose of a Nisoyan of a test is only to reveal our inner metal. And in fact, once our spiritual courage and our faith has been laid bare, the Nisoyan is actually meaningless. It's revealed to be a mirage. It had a sole purpose. The sole purpose was to reveal our souls. And once that happens, it simply fades away. Obviously, the author continues, immortals' might and money can never prevail against the decrees of the Almighty Maker of the universe. All God asks of man is that he await the ultimate vict divine victory with faith and patience. He goes on to say that Rashi identifies this as the hymn of Israel in exile. It depicts the supreme test of the nation's endurance throughout a seemingly interminable gullus. This psalm is a source of strength and courage to the beleaguered nation, for it counsels, wait patiently. 
if you will place your hopes in God, and in God alone, if you will relinquish your infatuation with money and political influence, then your swift redemption is assured. I said it from the beginning. This isn't about business. This is about the story of life. Life itself is one big marketplace, as our sages put it. Now, it's interesting that when we get to Psalm 6, which Rabbeinu Bechaya specifically identifies, David HaMelech says, It's to God alone that my soul hopes or awaits. The Mepharshim don't explain the word doiminafshi. That's because this word has already appeared in this very same psalm. In Psalm 2 it says, Ach el elikim doimiyo nafshi. Doimiyo usually means silent. The Mitzudah's David says, Inyan tikva. It means, I'm not making any noise. I have perfect hope, optimism. He says, for example, we find this in Psalm 48 in the 10th verse, Metsudas David states, and I quote, I haven't placed my aspirations in people. My aspirations are placed solely in God. For in all times, forever. Yeshuasi mimenu. My salvation is from him. Rashi translates doimio nafshi as mitzapen nafshi. My soul awaits. This is not just some kind of hopelessly optimistic approach. It's reliance. We're talking about betochen. I place my hope and aspiration. I'm relying on God. Interestingly, Rabbeinu Bechai doesn't quote verse 2. He quotes verse 6 to make his point. In verse 6, the Mitzudah's David further emphasizes, Achnafshi tikva lelekim. My soul hopes only to God. It's from Him that hope itself comes. The Ebenezer says, means I speak to myself. Sometimes you have to speak to yourself. Sometimes you have to communicate with the deepest essence of your own soul. That silent hope is pinned only and only on God. Very few of us achieve this. When we're calm, it's because I know that this doctor can help. That financier will be there for me. I have good friends whom I took care of last time around. Surely they'll help me and a host of other reasons as to why people might not be anxious and in whom they place their hope. But we learned in the very beginning of this psicha, of this opening to Shara Betochen, that Rabbeinu Bechaya says, Betochen means that your hope is placed in Hashem. As I paraphrased it then, 
Trust is a sum-zero game. Only in Hashem. Rabbeinu David Kimchi or Radak says, I will not get swept up in the kind of things that they say in their dialogue, in their conversation, in their perspective or their ideas. It is only to Hashem that I will hope for whom my aspiration will be placed. My hope comes only from Hashem from nobody else. Hashem is the one who will save me. The Radak says that verse 7 reinforces this by repeating it. Ach, hu, tsuri, He is my rock. He is my salvation. Rabbeinu David uses the words we've been looking for. Lechazek habitochoin. To fortify one's trust. One's faithful trust in Hashem. The Evtach. And I place my trust, boy, in Hashem alone. Sheyiya oid mizgabi. That Hashem will be my shield, my cover. Loi emoit. I will not falter. My dear friends, this is the trust, the betochen, that King David, David HaMelech himself, lived with. The verses of Psalms are not King David's personal spiritual expressions. They were written on behalf of the entire nation. David HaMelech speaks in my voice and your voice equally when he says that we should place and pin our hope and aspiration on God and on God alone. As he points out here, in the Art Scroll Commentary, he says that the difference between verse 6 and verse 2, where in verse 2 it says, eloikim. However, here we say, eloikim, is because here David HaMelech, despite the realization that his enemies are plotting against him, He maintains a tranquil, a peaceful silence. And as the Chavis Alvavos will later explain, the difference between the two verses serves to characterize two men on different levels of faith. The first man, and I'm quoting, retains his own private aims and desires and trusts that God will help him to achieve his goals. The second man, however, is so devout to his maker that he abandons all personal ambitions and preferences, accepting whatever lot God decides to grant him. The first man is described as El Eloikim, to God, implying that God is distant from him. He looks forward to a particular event which he considers personally Yeshuati, my salvation. Since this person's faith is relatively weak, he might falter. He is only assured that he will not falter greatly. Because after verse 2, it says, I won't falter greatly. Here, however, it says, 
And here, when we reinforce it in the next verse, verse He is my rock and salvation. Mizgabi loi emoit. He is my shield. I shall not falter. Not not falter greatly. I shall not falter. In this verse, the man is so completely committed, not el eloikim, le eloikim. And since God himself is the man's sole desire and tikva hope, he will not falter at all. This dovetails so beautifully into the thesis of betochen that we have been richly developing over the last episodes. The idea that in accordance with our betochen will come our deliverance. The more faith you have, the calmer you are, the more you are really and truly fully reliant on HaKadosh Baruch Hu Himself, the more assured you are that you will never falter and everything will work out for the very best. My dear friends, this disappointment can be avoided. It is possible for a person to live a life virtually emptied of the psychological distress called disappointment. You don't have to take a ride on Disappointment Boulevard because for the most part, if you're riding on Trust Road, if you're following the road that leads to full reliance on Hashem, then you will have the privilege of being freed from that psychological distress, from the angst and anxiety, from the anguish, from the anger and the frustration, and yes, the disappointment that characterizes the life of so many. I hope you found this inspirational. I did. It's a privilege to share these amazing words about faith and trust in Hashem. I'm grateful that you joined. If you enjoyed it, please hit the like button and make the effort to share it with somebody else. If you haven't yet subscribed, please do so, youtube.com forward slash Rabbi Mendel Kaplan. And don't forget to enable notifications. Thanks for joining. I look forward to seeing you back at the next episode as we continue to fortify our faith and our trust in our Kaddish Baruch Hu. Have a beautiful day.